This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome in to the Odds and Audibles podcast. It's a Monday. I'm Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on the show, which means it's Monday Mailbag. Uh, a lot of these questions are going to be centered around the instant classic, which unfortunately for a second year in a row for Oregon, they're on the losing end of it of last weekend's game at Washington, 36, 33 loss, what it means, what big picture type stuff. Um, I don't know if your guys' moods have changed since we recorded post game Saturday night, but like still the same. I'm probably weirdly more confident in Oregon after that game than before. Um, it It's a loss. It sucks. But those are the two best teams. Play like it. You'll meet them again. Yeah, feel the same way. And to Bo and Dan's point, some, a reporter asked if, with how they felt about losing control of their own destiny. They didn't. They haven't lost it. I guess it's possible there could be some weird three-way tie if Oregon won out and Washington lost to USC. And I guess I don't know how that plays out, but if Oregon wins out, they're going to be in the conference championship game. Like they control their destiny. I I spent some time last night actually looking at that. If Washington goes undefeated, um, the only one UCLA, you need UCLA to maybe drop one more game just to be real safe. They would give them three losses, but the only one that really like that you don't want, uh, to be tied with is Oregon state. Um, if you're tied with Oregon state and you lose to the Beavers, uh, that game gets really wonky. Um, everything else, like basically Oregon could almost suffer a second loss this season and tiebreakers that still plays out in Oregon's favor. Yeah. And, and my point is if they win out, I think they're in, I don't think there's really any, yes. any path to not. No. I mean, I, I, yes. again, I, mm-hmm. there could be a weird three-way tie at the top with USC and, and Washington too, if those games go differently, but I, I, yeah, no, I, I think everybody should still feel like all the goals are still available if they take care of business. And that's going to take us right into the first question mm-hmm. from at Jamison underscore white 16. I think this is the first time I've seen a question from Jamison. So thank you. Time for a little Pac-12 recalibration slash season look ahead. Washington State has had two tough weeks with Rising not playing yet. I feel okay about going to Utah. USC has not been very impressive. In my opinion, Oregon State is the scariest game left on the schedule. Do you agree? And then he writes, I see six wins, hashtag, it's notables. And for those who may have missed our show up in Husky Stadium, Matt and I both said, I think we're feeling decent about six wins. We expect it. Jared was like kind of in, out, leaned no, but I think cert- certainly kind of saw the path, Was came away impressed. Um, go check out that podcast. I know for those who are YouTube viewers, we don't post our post-game podcast to YouTube directly, but we do record a podcast that's on um, any podcast app you, you might have. So if you want to go check, take a listen to that, I think it's worth your time. Um, I do agree. I actually ranked, I don't know if you guys did this, I ranked the, the the final six games from most difficult to least difficult. And I, by a small margin, have Oregon State above the road game at Utah just because of the rising situation and because of how good Oregon's offense has played. Like, I expect Utah to, to be a challenge, especially defensively, and you've seen that throughout this season. But I'm not convinced they could keep up with Oregon. So I would put Oregon State above it. And then I'd have USC third, Washington State fourth, at Arizona State fifth, and Cal sixth. Um, we can quibble over Arizona State and Cal if we think it's worthwhile. But to me, Oregon State and Utah are the toughest two games. USC still scary because Caleb Williams is on that team. Mm-hmm. That defense, though, doesn't look great. Caleb Williams had a really rough game. I don't know if he'll have another one like that. It's probably unlikely he throws three picks in a game again this season. But with the way the schedule is set up, uh, I, I, I actually do agree. I think Oregon State's the toughest game, but you know, not not by a large margin over at Utah because I still have a ton of respect for that program. And, and playing in Salt Lake at Rice Eccles is 
it's a tough task regardless of who's playing quarterback for the use. Yeah, I think I would give Utah just the hands up because of the, the stadium situation and playing in Rice Eccles and Salt Lake City. Um, I think that's an incredibly dangerous place to go into. Uh, I talked about it probably in the preseason. I probably talked about it many a times in this podcast. Uh, that's a hard venue to go and play and go and win at. Um, and I, while I don't think the crowd had a huge factor in Oregon's loss to Washington, um, it was certainly there. There were certainly some penalties that were probably caused by it. Uh, that crowd in Salt Lake City. I mean, the last time we were there is very, very similar, if not a little bit louder. Uh, on, I mean, Britton Covey's uh, return for a, a punt or a, a touchdown on a punt return, like that whole press box was shaking. It was, it was crazy. But so I probably give Utah the slight edge over Oregon State. Um, again, the Cam Rising situation is certainly one to keep an eye on. There's a decent chance he just doesn't play at all this season. There's a decent chance that when he does come back, it's going to be in November. And I know Oregon's game is just before November. It's in two weeks now, 28th of October. Thanks. Um, good Lord, this is going by fast. Uh, anyways, so kind of have to keep an eye on that and, and just keep reading the tea leaves and see if he's progressing better than he has been. Um, but I think Oregon State's going to give Oregon a big run for the money. And like we were talking about earlier, I mean, if you're Oregon, don't you want another opportunity to go to the Pac-12 championship game with a win over Oregon State at the end of the season at home? Doesn't doesn't sound terrible if you're Oregon. And then USC, I mean, man, that Notre Dame game, Notre Dame did their damage because they got, they got four guys home nearly every single play. They didn't have to rush anybody other than four defensive linemen. And if you're Oregon, I don't think you'll have to do much else against USC. And I, again, I picked Oregon to lose to SC at the beginning of the season. Um, I was I was pretty darn high on USC, just like a lot of people were. Uh, I did not expect their defense to be arguably worse than it was last season, even after the transfer additions that they've added. They added some some seemingly really good talent to their team uh, over, over the over the offseason in the portal on the defensive side for sure. It's it's not great. And Caleb Williams is a hell of a player, and he'll go number one overall, and he's the best quarterback in the country, but. He can only do so much when he's getting chased around and, and their defense is allowing 40 points. Um, honorable mention, I think Arizona State should be higher than Washington State. That's my that's my thing right now because uh, I was listening to a podcast and they said, great Pac-12 teams find a way to win in the desert in November. And we're going to figure out if Oregon can do that because uh, there's been a couple seasons where Oregon has not won in November in the desert. It's always a tough competition. No one really knows why they're bad teams sometimes, but – you have to win in the desert in November. I think six wins happens. Um, Washington State, their offense is broken. Their defense is breaking. Um, something's not right in Pullman the last two weeks of the season. Uh, one touchdown offensively against UCLA two weeks ago, and I don't think they scored a touchdown this past weekend in a 44-6 drubbing to Arizona. Um Jared's point, Arizona is going up. They are getting better. But that should not have happened. Um, so Oregon has better talent. They have better skill. They have better depth. Um, they should win this game at home. Utah, I don't care if Cam Rising plays. It's in two weeks. He, he, even, if, even if he's been healthy for a month now, um, they – they should if, if he could have played a month ago, he would have. So if he if he finds himself on the field, he's gonna be incredibly rusty. And I don't even think um, they have the pieces around him to be what Utah's offense has been when he's at his best. Um, his best asset is his running ability. He's a good thrower, but his his best assets is dual threat ability. And with the knee injury that that he's been blown out with, um, I just. And it's not just him. Like, I don't know if you guys knew this or not. They played a safety at running back last weekend. Hey, he produced, went for like one, like 50 or something like that and two touchdowns. But their starting safety went both ways, played safety and running back because they don't have a lot of depth at that position. And they said they're going to do that moving forward. Um, Cal, I don't, I don't see them hanging with Oregon. USC, yes, they have Caleb Williams. They have the best player in college football. But – they don't have even close to the same offensive line as Washington. And Oregon was able to get pressure with four, five, six guys at times uh, against the Huskies. I, I think Oregon will be able to get pressure with three, four, or five guys 
uh, and keep guys to spy or drop guys in coverage, whatever. It's going to be tough. It's not going to be an easy walk in the park, but more confidence there that, that Oregon will win that game. ASU will be a blowout. I don't care. It's in the desert um, in November. That team is bad. Like they just, they don't have the pieces. Dillingham's a good coach. He, he schemed things up, but they just don't have the pieces. Um, if Oregon shows up and plays a B-level game. The one that scares the hell out of me is the Oregon State game. Um, they're, they've got solid quarterback play. DJU feels like he's kind of settled down the last couple of weeks and has figured out what works, what doesn't work within that offense. They've got two really good running backs. They've got a really good offensive line, and their defense is really solid. Um, I think they had five turnovers against UCLA last weekend, three interceptions on Dante Moore. Um, really, really good. That game's at home, though. Um, and I, I just I think six wins are there. Uh, 2014, when Oregon made the, the national championship or the, the college football playoffs, they lost like a week five or a week six game to Arizona and then ran the table. Um, I think this is probably as deep of a team as Oregon's had since 2014. I think 2019 has better star talent. Than, than Oregon does this season, top-end talent. But I think this team's better uh, equipped and is using their pieces in the correct manner, unlike 2019. Um, I think this team goes 6-0 and the last, the last six games. One thing to think about, and now we're getting way ahead because we're looking at the last game, but we're allowed to do that. The team's not supposed to do that. You well, wonder, it's just not ideal. Yeah, it's not ideal. That's what Dan does not want to do. Again, <laughs> Dan was asked, like, hey, would you guys want to play Washington again in the conference championship game? And was like, yeah, we're not – we're a ways away from that happening. We're not thinking about that. We're thinking about Washington State. Um, no, but, like, Oregon, Oregon State, you just wonder – and I guess maybe it didn't matter because Oregon just played a team that really – a rival that beat them last year. But it's hard to imagine Oregon losing twice to Oregon State in consecutive years with the way last year's game went in terms of just how – kind of embarrassing that loss was like that was losing to Washington last year was not ideal. Obviously just like this year's game though, you can look at it and say, Washington has pieces that undoubtedly challenge you. And there's a reason Washington this year is a top five team right now. And last year finished with double digit wins, not to say Oregon state was bad by any means, but you had that game basically on ice. Like it was kind of close to that Stanford Colorado game on, on Friday that we all I'm sure enjoyed watching. I just have a hard time seeing, and again, another year, different team. This seems like that's going to at least be something that the players have in the back of their minds going into that game, and maybe that makes them play tight, or maybe it makes them play with a little bit more fire, and they they uh, you know avoid what was really an <laughs> yeah just a collapse. So um, no, it's it's going to be a fun stretch run. I think undoubtedly the most difficult game is behind them now until they make the conference championship or if they make the conference championship. But there are hurdles here, and undoubtedly. Like you can't say that you think all these games are going to be blowouts. I think there's going to be some really competitive games. And if Oregon does maneuver its way through this unbeaten and winning by double digits every game, they're going to go into that game with Washington, rightfully so, with a ton of confidence that they can get it done this time. All right, second one from at Tim Stiege 12. You touched upon it a little bit in the postgame show by indicating you didn't feel too upset after the loss. What are your top three reasons that this loss didn't sting as much as other tough, tough losses in the past? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Um, I guess I, I just to, I wouldn't say I didn't feel upset with the loss. Like it was still a disappointing outcome because everybody would like to see Oregon win that game. I think we all came away having the perspective though that like, and this is kind of my my three reasons that like you should feel good about this team. Like what they did on Saturday was really, really impressive. And there was a lot of reasons. And so here's just three I wrote down. It's unlikely there's a game again where Oregon fails to convert three fourth down plays that all were consequential that could have been scoring plays or like the, the final one would have put the game on ice like it's unlikely you see that happen again and it's unlikely that there's turned away all three times and it might be unlikely that and this will have a question later about those decisions it also feels unlikely maybe dan makes similar decisions maybe he settles for field goals more like more going forward i don't know we'll see it's hard to tell and i as we said in the podcast on saturday i 
I'm still not convinced that those were all the wrong decisions. I don't I actually am certainly not convinced they were. So I think it's unlikely there's three games or there's three plays like that in a game going forward. If the defense played, I thought very admirably, and they're not going to face receiver talent, quarterback talent in one offense again, like that this season. Like that's Washington's, we talked about it coming in. That was why we picked against them. That's a really tough matchup. Oregon's not going to have to play them again until hypothetically they get there in Vegas in December. And then the last one is something that Matt or Jared kind of touched on earlier, which is that's a really difficult road environment. And I had concerns. That was one of the reasons I wasn't sure Oregon was going to be able to win that game was how do they handle a tough road environment? And you saw the issues that were posed at Tech. It wasn't great. Made a lot of mistakes. Had a lot of penalties. Two penalties in this game offensively. Only one was pre-snap. That was significantly better. And the, the decibel level at Husky Stadium was really, really high. It was close to a stadium record. I think it was like 132 or something. Like, that's, I thought they handled that stuff really well. So those are just three things I came up with. I'm sure there are more, but those were three things that led me to feel like, not that this was an isolated incident, but there's not a game remaining on the regular season schedule where I think all three of those things are, are present the same way. I, uh, I did not write down three, but I think I'll just be able to speak enough to have three clear outcomes. Uh, I, I, number one in my list is Washington is really damn good. I think that's an easy reason as to not be uh, upset, I guess, after the game. Um, it's hard to get upset from my perspective as the as a reporter on the team. Like, you want to see a good game. This is exactly what it was. It was a great game overall. Um, but And Washington's a really damn good team. They're a top five team in the country for a reason. Um, point two, to Eric's point, like, the defense played well. Like, I don't – I went through all the stats after the show – or, excuse me, after the game on the show. And that was the lowest offensive output of the season for Washington. It was the lowest offensive output for Michael Penix Jr. on the season. Um, it was their second lowest uh, point total on the season other than uh, Arizona two weeks ago. They played really well. And like Jeff Bossa said, like no one was butt free running down the field. Like they they had man coverage. They had guys on bodies. They It was not last year's Washington game where – you know, the game-winning touchdown is uh, a blown coverage and Bennett Williams trying to make up the ground and just can't get there because someone is butt-free. Someone is butt-naked running down the sideline into the end zone. Um, that happened a couple of times last season at Washington. Um, I thought you know, there were two straight three-and-outs that really turned the tide of the game. There was the goal-line stand. Uh, Oregon had more pressures in this game against Washington than any other team has this season. They've had, or in this game, they had 25% of the pressures against Washington all season. They did their job. They did well. Michael Penix is just a great college quarterback and is going to be, I think, a pretty good NFL quarterback down the road. It's a really damn good team. And the reason why you feel okay with that is because Oregon went toe-to-toe with them. It was as simple as that. I think that's probably my third answer here. Uh, they just went toe-to-toe with them. I agree with Dan and his perspective on all of his fourth down decisions. I don't have a problem with them. I guess the maybe the only one is the second, uh, the second fourth down on the goal line. But those, if that play is executed right, you have Trayshawn Olden wide, wide open in the middle for a touchdown. If Bonex reads through his progressions to see that Franklin is covered, goes to goes to Holden, who is looks to be the next progression. It's a it's a at the bare minimum a first down. It's likely a touchdown. That drive ends in points. Uh, and the, the the same thing I talked about this post game. A lot of those fourth down issues were execution on third down that caused a fourth down to become. And to Eric's point, there's probably not a game this season where Oregon gets shut out on fourth down. Well, and we'll get to more fourth down later on in the show, but you have to feel good about Oregon because they went toe-to-toe with Washington, who's the number five team in the country, who came in as the number seven team in the country, and really had many opportunities to win that game and squander them, sure, if you want to say it like that. But they went toe-to-toe. They did it. They did their best effort. They played a remarkable game. Defense held up. You had all these question marks about this team going into the game because they hadn't really played anybody, just like Washington. They answered all of those. you got to feel fine. They only dropped one spot in the AP poll. That's like everybody else said, oh, yeah, no, that, that Oregon team's pretty darn good. They, they don't deserve to drop any farther. I think you're fine. So 
those are my three biggest reasons why I was okay after the post or after the game. Well, there's not much left for me to cover, um, unfortunately. But I, I guess I would just say that you know the poise of this team that yeah. Husky Stadium was as as good as I've seen it. Um, unbelievable environment. Uh, the they had a decibel meter reader there and they were trying to break their record of 133 point whatever it was for the loudest stadium recorded uh and multiple times they got to like 131 in that game especially late when they showed it on the screen right um it was loud it was very loud and oregon handled themselves with poise um there weren't a lot of pre-snap penalties made by oregon there were a couple early in the game but then after that it, they they went away and i'll live with pi calls because if you don't commit the pi call it's probably a touchdown and it's better to give up 15 yards than to give up seven points um so i, I think the poise that fourth down stop gave you a lot of confidence you know they showed the ability to get the stop they just didn't do it enough and against a team like that who's that good that you know that that that's gonna happen and to your guys's points if they converted any of those third down plays that were before fourth down calls washington's saying the same thing that oregon's saying today we just were one more stop away from getting the win we just didn't make the one more stop that we needed and that's life in a game of football between two heavyweight fighters that both play A plus games. I don't know if maybe A plus, but they both give really good performances, and someone has to unfortunately lose. So um, I, I just I think they they showed that they're the second best team in the league. I think they're right there with Washington. You have to tip the cap to, to the Huskies. They're the better team. They've they won the game, um, but Oregon shouldn't if they do run the table and they do meet the Huskies in Vegas, they shouldn't go into that game like we thought it was against Utah in 2021 where, man, they just got destroyed and they have very little chance to win this one um, three weeks later. Like that, that won't be the, that won't be the vibe with this Oregon team. I, I would think if they get there and they meet him again. I'd be interested to see, and again, we're, we're jumping ahead, but if Oregon and Washington do play in the conference championship game, what, how Vegas would set that line? That's probably I think like you'd a, say the same, three. You think Washington would be favored by three and a neutral? I don't, I mean, yeah. I agree with Matt. I think it would be like two and a half to three. I think it'd be closer to a pick on a neutral. Yeah. I mean, again, this is going to be very minute and – more Vegasy than anything else. It's so rare that there's a pick them out there. It's so rare. I'd say they give Washington some love, and then maybe by the time the game starts, it's down to like Washington one and a half. One or yeah, yeah, one or I, one and a half. But I think the, the line probably would open three, maybe three and a hook. It'd be interesting. We'll 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 cross that bridge if slash when we get there. Um, and just the last thing I was going to touch on, because I don't think we're going to get to it over the last couple of questions, is something just to reiterate Jared's point on, like, go watch the explosive pass plays Washington had and see where Oregon's coverage was. Like, a lot right of those there. were just, a lot of those were, I mean, there's a couple. There were a couple that, like, looked like Giles Jackson certainly got a step behind Jaleel. Uh, the safety was a little bit late coming over. But a lot of those were just really good balls, man. And it's like you just have to tip the cap and say, man, those are really high-end receivers winning routes by the smallest of margin. And Oregon's guys were there. Um, and that's just good football from Washington. So I, I wanted to acknowledge that point because I've seen some people really critical of the secondary. And while it's hard to come out of this being like, yeah, the secondary played awesome, especially because they gave up two chunk plays with the game on the line in the last two minutes. But I also look and I go to – uh, sorry, I think, I was I, I, we're, we're in total agreement, probably. But go ahead. Those two chunk plays at the end, like those just good uh, freaking catches, man, by Polk and Adunze. Like Trequez Bridges is right there on the final one, and yeah. I don't remember. I think it might have been Trequez on the. It was uh, Taishim was in coverage, and Evan was a little late, late-ish coming over, if you will. Well, I want to talk about that Evan play because I've been seeing some slander on him. If you go back and rewatch that play, which I highly encourage you to do. 
Evan Williams is there as the deep safety to provide over-the-top help. His goal is to not let whatever receiver it is get butt-free. I'm going to keep saying that as long as I can. Butt-free down the field and a wide-open target for Michael Penix. He doesn't turn his head around because that's not his job. He's not there to turn his head around because he's expecting the ball to go another 15 yards down the field. Michael Penix completely underthrows that ball, and and Jalen Polk makes a great play. Like he had all day long and jumps up and catches it over Tysheem Johnson. Like I've just been seeing, like, oh, Evan Williams should have had his head on a swivel and picked that ball off, and Oregon would have won. It's like, no, his job was to go and play deep, deep coverage there and not do anything like that and make sure that regardless of what happens, like that guy doesn't catch the ball or I try to make a deflection. So same thing. Like Oregon secondary is pretty darn good. Again. Held him to a season low in yards. Held Michael Penix to a season low in yards. They're going to score points. They're going to get yards. But they did a good job at it. Yeah. So I, I think we're in agreement on that one in terms of just like the coverage. I didn't think the coverage was terrible at all. Um, there was there were a few times earlier in the game where the, the safety help wasn't great, I think, if you go back and watch it. Um, but it's football, man. And it's really tough to defend that offense, especially with <laughs> with all of the fields you're asked to cover back there. There's a lot going on, and to expect the team to play perfect football for four quarters against that caliber of an opponent is really hard. Like, I'm sure that support over the top was not there for concerns of, oh, this really good receiver is going this direction. I probably need to pay attention to him too. And that's the beauty of Washington's offense. They're really freaking good. <laughs> like. I- I just want to make sure people don't come out thinking the secondary stinks because I think the opposite no. was shown. I thought the secondary actually played, again, considering the opponent, and you could consider that part, I, I thought there were some pretty nice things they saw there, especially because they rotated through five corners in this game. You all played significant snaps, and sure, there were some unsavory moments, but there was some some good stuff to come away from too. All right, last one before the break from at UO Life 84457. Team is physical, tough, has heart, grit. Loss was tough, mistakes were made, but have you seen enough growth and progress from the team top down to consider them a conference title game and playoff contender? Hashtag odds and audibles. 100% for the conference title game. And we've, I think we've all said here we, we think there's pretty high likelihood. I, I won't say I expect it because it's really difficult to maneuver through a schedule unbeaten in, in, in this conference right now and with some of these on the road, but I think the odds are really good. If I were to pick one way or the other, I would pick that they'd be in the conference championship game. And by that token, I guess you can say that they should be considered a playoff contender. Because if they beat Washington in the conference championship game, I'm pretty sure they're they're at least going to give the committee a really difficult decision to make. Because this could get weird. I don't know if just looking at the top of the standings right now and kind of how all these conferences are set up, a really good team is probably going to get left out. Just looking at it. where With the SEC, with Georgia at the very top there, with all those big 10 teams up there contending. You figure those two teams or conferences are definitely getting teams in. You've got the big 12 with Oklahoma situated right at the top. Texas still lingering. Like there's, there's going to be a lot of competition. I think it's going to be a tough year for the committee potentially. But if Oregon is to win its final six regular season games, which I think is possible, I would say likely. And they're able to take care of Washington in a neutral which again, I think is certainly possible. I didn't watch anything in that game that told me they can't hang with Washington. I hope you don't come away feeling that way. It was really competitive until the final two minutes. I mean, even through the final two minutes of the game and even through the final kick that was missed. So yeah, I think the answer is yes to both. Like, I I think I feel better. I, that's what I said the other day. And I still think that's true. Uh, yeah, of course. Um, we'll see if they get to the conference style game. Uh, it's in, it's going to be difficult, um, but you know Oregon already has their one loss out of the way. Uh, no team is still until now Pac-12. I don't know regular season, uh, so they got their loss out of the way. Washington could be the first, but uh, they have a tough schedule just like Oregon does to finish out the year. Uh, football is football. This is why you play the games. Yada yada yada. We'll see if they get to the conference title, but I feel good about them in that spot. Like Eric said, if they do end up facing Washington in the conference championship game. It's going to be a hell of a game, another one, just on a neutral site, um, which may help Oregon, may help Washington. I don't know. That's We'll, we'll find out maybe eventually or maybe not. Uh, and again, for the college football playoff contender, um, yeah, I know if, if, if Oregon were to, to have won uh, this game Saturday against uh, Washington, then 
yeah, they're probably looking at that five hole right now where Washington is. Um, I don't think they move Florida State out of four. I think that's a damn good football program. Um, but they're still knocking on the door. Uh, they're still right there. It's going to be difficult, but you have to remember, like, just like Oregon has to go play USC and Utah and all the other good Pac-12 schools that still are on the or uh, also on in the conference. So what the Big Ten has to do. Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State all play each other down the end of the season. So one of those teams is going to probably finish with two losses in that three-game stretch. Uh, the SEC still going to be some games that have to be played, like the like the chan- or like the title game. It's obviously way too early to think about any of this because Oregon has to go and win next week against Washington State and then continue to win after that. But I do feel certainly good about Oregon being a playoff or called or excuse me a title or a conference title contender. I felt good about that before the game. Like Eric, I probably feel a little bit better about it now. Um, only little just because I thought they were pretty damn good to begin with. And they were pretty damn good on the Saturday. And I think they'll be pretty damn good for the rest of the season. As long as nobody runs butt naked down the sideline. Again, not much more for me to say. Um, I'm in agreement. I I think that they're in a position where everything is still on the table. Um, it would be, I, I think the question, if Oregon runs the table and Washington runs the table and Oregon wins the, the Pac-12 championship, the question becomes, does Oregon or does the Pac-12 send two teams or do they get left out? I, I think that's the scenario that plays out for the college football playoff is, if, if Washington drops to four and still finds its way in, or do both teams just say, hey, we're not going to put either one of them in. They both get to go to New Year's Six Bowls. I, I I would think Oregon would get in, but the rest of the country is pretty good. You guys ran through it. Texas, uh, I mean, Oklahoma, excuse me, um, Michigan, Ohio State, Georgia, and Florida State. Teams are going to get left out. And some of those schools will have a loss by the end of the season and still more teams will get left out with one loss. So um, it's going to be fun. I hope we, we see that scenario play out because that would be fascinating to see. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap up this edition of the Austin Audible's podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Yachts and Audibles podcast. Three questions in, two more to go. Fourth one from at Ken Dodge 11. Will Dan Lanning ever learn from his mistakes or just go with the proverbial, it's on me, and then continue to make the same mistake year after year? I felt he let the team down by not getting points on very makeable field goals to keep it close. Hashtag Yachts and Audibles. Um, one of the things I was thinking about shortly after this game, and then I heard Josh Pate say it better than I would have, so go listen to Josh, was just about this is a young – we have to remember Dan Lanning's like 37. He's, this is his second year being a head football coach. He's still finding his footing. And the point that, that Josh made was uh, in the previous years, coaches who were this kind of ilk, this age, would be in low visibility situations at smaller schools where they were able to make, have their growing pains, if you will, away from national spotlight. It just so happens that that's not the case anymore. 
And Dan's in the position here where he's trying to figure out the best approach in these situations. It also happens to coincide with an era of football where analytics have gotten far more involved in decisions. And there's just in general, more fourth down decisions that feel like you have to make, right? Because there were times in the past where I know Chip was extremely aggressive on fourth, but back in that era, a lot of teams wouldn't have even, if you'd like they had a decision to make on some of the ones that Dan was, was thinking about. And that's just the way the sport has changed. And Dan being an aggressive coach, he's forward thinking. Like I applaud him for having those decisions and, and at least considering them. And, and at times they're going to work and you're going to feel really good about it. At other times you won't. So I wrote down in my notes here, like you're dealing with a little young coach itis to a certain degree here. And the good thing if you're Oregon is Dan has made a long-term commitment to Oregon. And a part of that commitment and what he's talked about is getting better and self-assessing and trying to improve. And I'm of the mind that he will. And so whether or not we think these are bad decisions or not, I think Dan is going to, I don't think Dan's going to just continue to do the same thing over and over again. We've already seen plenty of examples in other areas of the sport where he hasn't continued to do the same thing and has, and has kind of um, made some adjustments. So I'm no, I'm not someone who thinks Dan is, is stubborn enough to just keep doing the same thing over and over again if it doesn't work. I'm also not of the mind that, like, as we've established on this podcast, that every one of those decisions was stupid and, you know, and, and, and he should be dragged through the mud for the next couple of years until they figure these out because of it. So um, I get people are frustrated. Like, I understand that. I, I also think, like, you come out of this one thinking Oregon has a really Oregon's head coach is really bad and doesn't know what he's doing. I think you're wrong, and I think you should be encouraged because he's 37 years old, has made a long-term commitment, and it's my feeling that he's just going to get better in making the right decisions, even if I don't think he made the wrong decisions necessarily very often on Saturday anyway. Yes, he's going to learn from his mistakes. It's you know hopefully that's what everybody does in life, but I, I know. Dan is very critical of his own self. He's critical of how he coaches. He's critical of how everybody on the team plays and how everybody on the team coaches and how the analysts do their jobs as well. He runs a tight ship that's been ever present through his first, whatever, 18 months here on the job, 19, 20 months here on the job. And I'm more than confident that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm more than confident that, yeah, no, he'll, he will learn from his mistakes. And even though they're not all mistakes, um, it's very clear and he'll figure it out, but this is what Dan Lanning is. If you don't like it, then it's going to be hard for you to watch some Oregon games because he's going to go for it on fourth down a lot. And I'll go back to that BYU game. Like I did post game against Washington. That was the first time we got to see Dan in those types of situations where they had not like, you know, a fourth and one from the two yard line. Like, yeah, of course they're going to go for it there, but Going forward in your own territory, going forward uh, on a drive where the game's still close, and it's like, oh, what do what are we doing here? Um, it's new. Change is good. Uh, it's not a lot of not good for some people, but I think overall change is very good. And this is just how it's going to be. Uh, I don't mind it. I think it's good. I think Oregon, when they feel confident enough in their in their abilities here, like they did against Washington to get two to three yards, that could be the difference maker in the game. That can extend a four-minute drive into a nine-minute drive and completely run out the clock. That could end the game like uh, that fourth and three from midfield could have done if Oregon landed it. I think it's fine. I think, yeah, he'll learn from his mistakes. He's young enough to know that these are problems. And he'll we'll talk to him later today about his uh, self-evaluation of, of what he did and after watching film. So... We'll get a better answer on that to see if he did learn from his mistakes or maybe he's just bullshitting us and hasn't done anything well. Um, if I knew this answer, I wouldn't be in this position because I would know the future and therefore I would be the winner of the $1.7 billion lotto or whatever it was. Powerball. Powerball. Um, mm -hmm. Congratulations to that person. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think he will adjust, but... I, what makes Dan a good coach is his aggressiveness, is his coaching style. And so I hope he doesn't alter it too much. Um, I, I think the 
first half fourth down call was fine or decision to go for it was fine um you get the ball to start the second half so if you didn't get it you can get points there um the second one i would have taken the points but i also understand it and if also if execution would have happened that decision never would have needed to be made um and then the last one absolutely it needed to be to get made. It didn't matter if it was 50 yards or 75 yards. Washington was going to be able to go down the field and score uh, if, if they were going to score. Um, 25 more yards wasn't going to be the difference in Oregon getting Definitely. a stop, most likely. Um, so uh, keep being who you are. Uh, I I do agree, though. It kind of sounds like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth. I do agree, though, that like I, I, I think this is a situation where some analytics are pushing too far into the just ebb and flow of, of games. But Brandon Staley th- for the Chargers is also brought up consistently of his decisions of going forward on fourth down and his aggressiveness. And I I get the percentages, but at some point in time, you have to kind of throw those out and go, look at the moment. If we don't get this, if, if, the, if the, the percentage doesn't work out in our favor, let's look at the moment and what's the impact here. Um, but – Long story short, keep doing what you're doing. Keep going forward on fourth down. We like it when you know everyone loves it when when it works, and everyone then says, "Oh, this is the worst thing possible. You've got major issues. You need to change your entire coaching philosophy." When it doesn't work, unfortunately for Oregon, it's just cost them two games against Washington in two years. But let's not talk about the decision that uh, against Colorado in the second quarter or the first quarter, whatever it was, to go for it and basically end the game there. Let's not talk about it how they did it a bunch against BYU or how they did it against UCLA last season. Um, like, there are there are multiple scenarios where this has come out and it's paid off for Oregon. And we only talk about it when it doesn't work. And everyone you know, has these major complaints when it doesn't work. And I don't know the numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure it works out more often than it does under Dan Lanning so far this season. Um, it's just... A couple of them have come at really big moments in time that have, you know, played a part, not the reason, but played a part in a loss. They're eight and 13 on fourth mm-hmm. down this year. They're eight and 10 coming in, which is, again, that was like one of the best marks nationally. And, and just the last thing, what, what, what do you want the course correction to be, I guess? And I understand being more heavy. You scared Matt- Silly Willie and kick it like Mario Cristobal did from the 40 yard line. I know. Come that, on, that- get the hell out of here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the point I was literally going to make, Matt. Is like if the course correction is just always take the safer route, that puts a cap on your team, especially in a matchup like this against Washington. If there's ever a time to take some chances, it's in a game against a really good opponent where those risks, if they do pay off, are the reason you win the game. You know, because we're having a totally different discussion here. If they went three for three on those and Oregon won by whatever, so yeah, I don't know, I. I think I think there's a lot of hindsight's twenty twenty. A lot, a lot. There's a lot of that right. Always now. is. If you don't want your coach just, to be aggressive and you don't want him chucking the ball downfield, you want him throwing dink and dunks in the entire time. You don't want to put the ball through the air at all. So let's just run the football. Let's go power eye and be super safe and let's not take any risks. It, Even I, when I, you do that, it's not that safe. Just ask Mario and Georgia <laughs> Tech. Um, so. <laughs> My question with this, I've seen a lot of the analytical talk. It's like, oh, it's taking over sports, blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, cool. Are we sure that Dan even does a lot of these fourth down calls and analytical decisions? Like, has he ever brought up the situation where he's like, uh, no, the numbers told us that blah, blah, blah. Like, he no. never has. He's always sat there, and especially against Washington, in his last post game, he's like, look, we just looked at the box. We looked at the numbers. We liked what we saw. I had a timeout if I wanted to fucking call it. I didn't want to call it. And he went for it. Like, I don't think this is an analytical decision for Dan most of the time. Do I know that for certain? No. no yeah. But the way he talks about this is strictly based on like, look, we liked the look that we had. We wanted to go for it. We felt good about the numbers that we had compared to the team's defense that was opposing us. We went for it because of the look, not the analytics. And I'm sure in most of these situations, the analytics would probably tell you to go for it because it probably would add to your win percentage. But it's not the Brandon Staley like, hey, I'm going to stand up here at the podium and say that we had a 68.4% chance of winning the game if we went forward on fourth and two rather than a 54.6% chance of winning the game. Like, 
He's there. I, I don't think this is a, as big of an analytical movement as some are making it out to be. I, I, it, this isn't baseball. This isn't the whole world revolves around analytics for sport. I think there are plenty of good analytics to figure out who is better or who is faster and et cetera on a football field. But I think, I think again, I do not know for certain. And maybe this is a question I asked Dan later today. I think it is. I think that most of these choices from Dan throughout the years, these two years, so I guess, you know, not that long. I think they're more gut feelings or just what the matchups look like on the field rather than getting into his ear like, hey, you have an 84% chance of getting this if you go for it. But that's just what I see. I just like when, when you hear Dan talk about it, it's just football. It's like, I think our guys are going to beat those guys in the trenches. And if I have a call, I, I can call a timeout if I want to. So I like that football play more than not doing the other football play. That's just my 10 cents, though. I think that I think it is a question we ask on Monday, and and just I because I, I'd actually would be curious um, how much of that goes into it. I'm sure the probabilities are something he is made aware of, but it to your point, Jared, I I think a lot of it's just like, hey, I I think we're gonna get it, and if we get it, really, a really it's a really positive outcome. It would have been a really positive outcome. You think about what happens if, you know, I mean, again, now we're, now we're revisionist history in it, but it's just like, let's say that they get all three of those. They score two touchdowns and Washington never gets the ball at the end. Everybody's feeling really good about their really aggressive young coach. And if Oregon scores two touchdowns, again, revisionist history, like you said, if Oregon scores those two touchdowns, who knows if there's even a threat if Washington gets the last drive of the game. Right. So hindsight, like Matt said, 2020 no point that way here. <laughs> just, uh, just to play devil's advocate, because oh. I, I don't know if he is or not, but Marshall Malcow follows him everywhere he goes during the game, carrying a binder. And Marshall has a headset on. I mean, like it's a really weird thing to, to be, I, mean, I, think, I, I don't know what that is, but like, I, I think Marshall can absolutely be informing him on what the probabilities say. That doesn't mean that that's all that's directing his decision-making is what I would say. No, I'm, I'm just saying that... It's a, it's a good point, Matt. I, I, I agree. It's a good point. Uh, like, uh, Marshall's mm -hmm. got some binder of data. And it could, it could be, hey, when ZTF is in the game on third down, 65% of the time they blitz. Like, that could be the data that they're looking at. It, I mean, it, it could... It might not be anything related to down and distance type stuff. It, it could be all personnel stuff, or you know, I don't know what it is. But I'm just putting that out there that there's a that right. his chief of staff that he leans on to make basically on field game, you know, player personnel decisions, all that stuff is with him by his side the entire game with the binder with a headset on. My only thing, my only thing about that is Malco. Malco is a chief of staff. I don't think we've ever heard him. We had him on the podcast. I don't think we've ever heard him or Dan talk about his role on the field. I'm not exactly sure he has a role on the field other than to stand around and be with Dan. And maybe I'm completely wrong here. Maybe he is talking about down and distances. For a guy who's never had a coaching position in his career in college football, I feel like there's probably a better chance that one of the offensive analysts upstairs is giving that information to him. Uh, maybe it's Drew Maringer. Maybe it's one of the other analysts that are in the box. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that's another question for Dan. What the hell does Marshall I, Malco do on the field with you in that binder? Oregon basketball has a data guy, and he doesn't play. He's never played. He's simply right. an analytics. He's an analytics guy. And if you go to practice, he sits in the in the. No one knows this because don't get to go to practice, but. But when we go to practice, he sits there basically in the stands with a computer and he just inputs all this information that's happening. And then Dana during throughout the practice gets a sheet of paper that tells them stats and you know things that they've done and, and whatnot. And I know that they lean on that in games. And just to counter your point, that that's a guy that has no experience playing college basketball. Different sport. I understand that. Apples to oranges. But these these analyst guys, data guys, they, you know, typically don't play football and they're there just to provide you the context of percentages. I, like, like I said, from the very beginning, I don't know what that is. I, I, it, it might not be data at all, but 
Just I just know there's a guy that follows Dan everywhere he goes with a binder that's got information in it. I don't know what that information is. We should ask that. I think I think we should ask it. And I, honestly, I would probably rather have somebody who's not in charge of calling the offense and involved in that with the binder just because I'd rather have him watching everything and not being distracted by those things. But who the heck knows? Yeah, it's this simply is- just, uh, hey, give me the percentages if we go for it here. Like, how, how often do we do we get it? I, 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 Dan has to at least have some sort of a knowledge of the probability. Whether or not that decides what he's going to do, I would be skeptical if that's the entire approach. I don't think it's this, – this divider says we go for it, so we go for it. But I, do, I would imagine he's aware of what the probability says. I, I think that would be strange if he wasn't, mm-hmm. frankly. Somehow Marcus Arroyo has made its way into this podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you right. guys don't get that joke. I didn't get it. Explain. He always had a big binder on his desk when he was here. He always would reference the binder, yeah. the binder, the binder. Big binder guy. He had the the nuclear launch codes. He had the football. <laughs> Last one here on the show from at Duck Cruise. Let's talk about something positive. Can you talk about Aiden Breland's commitment and how it could impact other prospects that Oregon is in on? Hashtag Audibles. We weren't going to go the entire show without talking about a five-star commitment. So we're going to do that. Uh, Matt, I'll send it over to you. Um, I guess let's, I don't know, start with the commitment. And then there are some other big names that Oregon is very much in the picture for. Um, I know Saturday wasn't everybody's favorite day from an on-field perspective. But kind of where do you think things are at right now from a recruiting perspective? Yeah, I mean, they're they're 10th in the country. Um, Breland is like the fourth or fifth best defensive line edge the end player that they've added in program history. Um, beating a school like Georgia says enough of just who this guy is. Georgia really wanted him. They thought they had him. And then at the last second, Oregon swooped in and picked his commitment back. Um, it's big. And it comes from SoCal. And and it it's one of the few guys out West that, is a player of importance at maybe the most important position, the hardest position at least, to, to find talent and to develop talent, and that's defensive line. Um, 6'5", 290, uh, you're going to lose your two big dudes up front in Popo and Taki this season. They've certainly got multiple guys on the roster that you feel solid about for next season to fill that role, but Breland will be in that discussion as a true freshman. Probably won't start, but... Good chance he plays. Good chance he sees the field. Look at Mateo this season and the impact he has made, even if he's not a, a, a starter for, for Oregon's defense as an edge defender for different positions. But um, what comes next? Like, this is the start of a, of a run that could be pretty good. Um, Elijah Rushing's another five-star, another edge guy decommitted from Arizona. Oregon looks like the prohibial favorite right now. Um, Jericho Johnson, that's Jared's like favorite player right now, it sounds like. Um, another massive defensive lineman from Southern California. He was at that Washington game. We'll see how that maybe impacts things. Or Northern California, sorry, Bay Area. Um, uh, but we'll see how that Washington game impacted his decision because he's high on, on UW as well. But the, the trick for Oregon is they, they have – an official visit still in their back pocket for Jericho. So Jericho was at the Colorado game for an unofficial visit and then showed up for the Washington-Oregon game for a Husky official visit. He cannot uh, officially visit the Huskies again, and now um, Oregon will be able to bring him back for another one this later this season. I think he's coming for the USC game. Uh the, the class has the potential now with a five-star in the fold, another one trending that direction to be the second straight year in a row with two five-star commits. Maybe, maybe, maybe some other things happen. I mean, we talked about it. Like I'm more curious about the, the flip candidates um, that Oregon's going to go after. That's going to happen. There'll be some names that pop up uh, that will make visits late in the fall. And I, I, I think, you know, it's going to take some work, but Oregon's probably still in a position where it's realistic to think maybe they, they break the school record again. Is it going to happen? I don't know. Is it possible? Yes. There's, I mean, there's just some dudes still out there. Um, Johnson actually took his official visit to Washington in June. 
So this was an unofficial that he went up there to Washington with. Um, that was the only thing that I, I remembered. Um, and But you're right, Matt. Like Oregon still has his official visit whenever he wants it, which I think uh, Brandon Huffman, I think, talked about it being against USC as well. And there's a big difference between an unofficial and an official visit. Um, just the the amount that you can do as a as a recruit with the with the coaching staff and everything. Um, but again, Johnson got to go watch Oregon against Washington. It wasn't like uh, he got to watch Washington beat the snot out of I don't know uh, Fresno State. Sorry, Fresno State. That you were the only team that came to my head. He's a big dude. I like Matt said. I'm very high on him. Uh, I think he's. Really, really, really important to this class if they can get him. Um, might be higher on my list than Elijah Rushing, just uh, just because they need they're going to need more interior guys down the line. They did a good job. Oregon did last season in getting interior guys. A lot of dudes from Texas, a lot of bigger kids. Terrence Green, Michael Gardner, Amari Washington, Johnny Bowens, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, uh, Jericho's a huge human being. Listed at six foot four, three hundred pounds as a senior in high school. Uh, I think Breland is going to be another interior dude. He's 6'5", 290. Kind of strikes me as potentially like a Brandon Dorless type of player who can play on the edge if need be, but more likely is to line up at defensive end and have that role alongside somebody who's just a bigger guy. And obviously Oregon will hit the transfer portal this offseason and try to get an edge rusher because they're going to need another one. Uh, they'll have Mateo in his sophomore season, and the, but Birch is probably gone. He's got another year, but he's he's probably out of here at the end of the season. Um, so they'll need another edge rusher, but it's the beginnings of a fantastic class as, as if it wasn't already. They did have uh, a tight end decommit, Jackson Ford, out of, I think it was Melissa, Texas, uh, yesterday night. Um, one of the lower rated members of the 2024 class, um, but that just bodes well for Oregon and Roger. Oh, boy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna Good luck. the heck out of this name. Uh, God. Saga Saga Paula, I think it is. I, it's it's gonna be bad, and I apologize to the the family if they're listening, and frankly everybody's ears because I don't know how to really pronounce uh, Polynesian names very well. But probably puts Oregon in good position for Mister Roger, tight end Roger, and uh, that's a good addition to this class too. Uh, tight end depth is a concern. I'm not sure if any of you have heard that before on this podcast, but it still is a concern going into next season. Like to hit the portal there as well. Um, and then lastly, uh, Jason Brown. I think he was also in attendance and an unofficial visit for that Washington versus Oregon game. Um, Oregon has been trending to him recently. You have to like where Oregon stands. Uh, Carlos Lockin has done a really good job so far as a recruiter. Uh, he hasn't landed the, the big five-star uh, names, but Jason Brown is pretty damn close to being a five-star. I think he's a top 100 kid in both the 24-7 sports, top 247, and the composite. So he's a very talented overall uh, individual. And again, if he doesn't land the five stars, that's fine because Bucky Irving was not a five-star. Noah Whittington was not a five-star. Jordan James is not a five-star. Uh, Jalen Lamar was not a five-star. Dante Dotto is not a five-star. Running backs all depend on how your offensive line is, which I guess we can get to later with recruiting, but um, just like Utah and their safety running back. Good offensive line does well for does wonders for a running back. So have to feel good about Oregon and Jason Brown, although he is an in-state Washington kid. Um, certainly gave him, Washington certainly gave him a lot to think about this past weekend because the run game was a lot, I thought was a lot better than I had anticipated. But uh, Oregon's trending upward for you know, three top 100 kids and Brown, Johnson, and Rushing. And then for tight end Roger, um, who's also listed as a four star. I think he's a top like 450 player in the country according to his composite score. So I think it'll be a fun finish. Again, signing day, like we talked about, just in a couple of months. It's more or less right around the corner. So a lot of things that could happen from here and now or here and then. I just had a couple more thoughts on Breland. Go watch the tape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's something else. I, on our message board, somebody was asking, I think before Breland committed, like, is he any good? And somebody responded, go no, watch him. He, no, he, remind, he, he reminds me of Reggie White, uh, which was the response, which could be slightly hyperbolic, but physically in terms of just being huge, athletic, extremely powerful, like that's the thing that stands out when you watch him. It's just he's moving guards. He's moving tackles. 
like like around like they're nothing. And of course, those are high school players, and he's already built like frankly an NFL <laughs> defensive lineman just in terms of his pure size. So of course he's going to overpower some folks, but that stuff stands out, and he's rated where he is for a reason. Um, I never want to be the one who predicts a true freshman starts, and I won't do that with Breland. But the case for him being very involved early is is a couple of things. Plays at Matter Day, one of the best high school programs in the country. Guys who come from that school are coached up and are ready to play, very much like St. John Bosco, which is something that Coach Tupo, uh, Tupoy, Coach Tosh Lupoy talked about with Mateo and his production early was was about like he came in pretty ready because of his coaching up at at Bosco. And I think Breland will be another player where he's coming from such a powerhouse program that that I'd anticipate he is available and ready to make contributions immediately. And the other part is, is the reality that we've kind of already talked about where Oregon is going to have to totally reshape this defensive line. It's not just a couple of guys. Mm-hmm. It's like could be basically everybody who plays a lot with the exception of like, I guess Keon War Hudson has a decision to make. Jordan Birch could have a decision to make. But like Popo's gone, Taki's gone, Dorless is gone, Casey Rogers is gone. Those are like your heavy hitters up there. Um, mm-hmm. So there's going to be opportunity. I anticipate again they use the portal, but like there's a that's part of the pitch probably for Breland. That's probably part of the pitch for Jericho Johnson is like, hey, we we signed a bunch of true freshmen last year. We're, we're really high on. They're developing, but you could come up here and, and outclass some of those guys and be like our third and fourth best defensive tackle from day one and parlay that into three years of really high-end football that gets you ready for the draft. So I think you have to be really encouraged by the way that this class is building. And you look at what they've done in the front seven in particular, we're really high on what they've done at linebacker with the type of athletes they're landing there and how they fit with what we've seen from this defense recently. I think you have to be really excited by the direction it looks like it's going now that they have Breland in the fold. And if they do finish with with Russian and, and Johnson, you're that's like a home run defensive line class, especially for a team out west. Uh, 2021 and 2019 classes each had five guys inside the top 100. Oregon has four currently. And um, you look at Elijah Rushing, who is in the top 100 as a five star. Um, he's 14th overall. Like things are trending there. That would be five if they hold on to all the other four and they also um, stay inside of the top 100 when their final rankings get released. But uh, the question maybe then becomes can Oregon find a, a sixth guy in the top 100 to go out and, and land, whether that's a flip? Um, whether that's just going out and finding a guy, or maybe like a guy like Jericho Johnson, who's like 107th in the country, moves up a couple spots and finds his way into the top 100, commits to Oregon, and that becomes the fifth guy or the sixth guy. Or maybe they flip um, Jeremiah McClellan, uh, 70th best player in the country, committed to Ohio State looking at Oregon really hard, maybe that's how they get there. Um, I think that might be one of the storylines. Do we see Oregon sign the most top 100 players in the country in one single season in program history? Maybe more so than top overall class. But I guess if you probably do that, you're probably going to be close to doing the the top class already. Yeah, I just have one more thing. This is why you bring Dan Lanning to Oregon for as much as we've talked about Dan and his decision-making and all that. And it's going to sound a little bit like Mario Um, guys, a hell of a recruiter. And if you're Oregon, honestly, if you're any West coast school that has anticipation or or dreams of competing for whatever your next conference's title is, you're going to need to do it in the trenches because there's a lot of trench monsters across the country that aren't on the West coast. And we're looking at you, SEC and, Ohio, and Big Ten, uh, some ACC like Clemson. They do a really good job there. Same with Florida State. There are We've talked about it many times in this podcast again. There are only a handful of dudes in the trenches on the West Coast. Dan Lanning and Oregon are 
in position to land three of the five biggest and take them out of the grass of Washington, of USC, of UCLA. They picked Breland up from USC's back door. Um, they could do it with rushing and, and Arizona and take him away from the potential Big 12 of Arizona and Arizona State. And then Johnson's from Fairfield, California, Northern California. Like that's another school that, you know, that's another just a California high school. And USC definitely has a stranglehold over the whole state. But you could land those guys and keep them and go into the Big Ten and improve your trenches. Like it's going to work wonders down the road. That's what Dan did last season going into Texas and doing some of that. This is why you bring a guy like him to Oregon. You have to capitalize when there's an elite defensive prospect on the West Coast. You have to be all in. You have to be trying to get him from the day one, and that's exactly what he's been doing with rushing Jericho Johnson and uh, Aiden Breland. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for submitting your questions. We'll have a full recap of what Dan Lanning says after reviewing that Washington loss later today, or if you're listening to it Tuesday morning, it's already been up. Um, we'll have a podcast on Tuesday as well, kind of recapping everything that Landing and some of the players have said since that game. Um, we're efforting to get someone on, Jamie Vinnick from CougFan.com, to come on this podcast on Wednesday to preview this upcoming weekend's game. And then uh, Thursday's show will be out with game predictions and score bold predictions as well um, for the, the Saturday 12.30 kick. On ABC. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, real quick, uh, we won't debate it, but 1230 kick again in two weeks at Utah on Fox. Uh, the 1230 slot is the Oregon slot, apparently, for the Ducks this season. Uh, we'll bring it all down on DuckTerritory.com and here on the Austin Audible's podcast at a later time. Thank you for listening to the show. You've been listening to the Austin Audible's podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel, streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. The wait is over. The Shy returns with new episodes on Paramount+. Plus. What brings you to the Shy? Opportunity. Everybody get down! Walk right up to the side. A new rain is coming to the south side. Never should have sent a boy to do a woman's job. The Shy. New episodes now streaming. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash The Shy to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with the Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. The subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply.